This sermon series is entitled, The Songs of Our Savior. The songs that are sung by our Savior Jesus Christ as he used the psalms for his own personal worship. Even through the most difficult times in his life, he turned to the psalms. And we want to learn to be like Jesus, to use the psalms in your trials and tribulations. That's one of the main objectives of this sermon series, and it's 150 sermons long at least. So it's going to be a while, and you're going to hear it often. We will take breaks in between the five books, so don't be too concerned. After Psalm 41, we will take a break from the book of Psalms, do something from the New Testament, and then get back to book two of the Psalms in Psalm 42. All that to say, I want to teach you how to read and use the Psalms, how to use them in worship, how to use them in your personal life, how to use them to change and transform your heart to become more like Christ, who sang these Psalms for strength, even as he hung on the cross. That's our sermon series, and so today we're going to do a little bit more of a workshop kind of sermon, meaning I want to teach you five ways to read the Psalms. And some of these we will go through very quickly, and some of these a little longer, but I trust we will be enriched by these five different ways to read the Psalms. First, we should read the Psalms responsively or corporately, and so we're going to do that now. I want us to read the Psalms as it is on the handout, where I will read alone the light print, and then you will read with me the dark print. And so we are going to read Psalm 28 responsive or corporately because these psalms were written for God's people in worship. And so I want you to participate in the reading of this psalm with me. So follow along and please read nice and loud Psalm 28 when we get to the bold print. A psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest, if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. 
This is the word of the Lord, and God's people say, thanks be to God, amen. That's the first way to read the Psalms, in corporate worship, reading them together responsively. It's very clear that several of the Psalms were organized and structured in that manner. I don't necessarily think that this one was, but I think it worked. Great job. Second way to read the Psalms. First was responsively, corporately. Second is historically. This psalm was written in human history by a real man, and we have right at the superscription of our psalm, in the original Hebrew, it's a psalm of David. King David was a king over the nation of Israel in human history, and in fact, more has been written about him and by him than any other king in the ancient world. We're talking about real people with real problems in this world when we read the Psalms of David. He was one of the greatest kings that the nation of Israel ever had. He was a mighty warrior. He is said to be a skilled musician, which makes sense why so many of his expressions of worship were poetic, song-like praises to God. He was clearly a devout man of faith. From this psalm in particular, he was overwhelmed with pressure and trials. We see right in the first two verses, he's crying out to God for help, and he sounds, I would say, desperate. Wouldn't you say? God, please do not turn a deaf ear to me. If I don't have you, then I am going to head to the pit. Or another way to translate that poetic phrase, I'm a dead man. I'm a goner. If you don't hear my prayer, please, please, please listen to me, or I will be dragged away like the wicked. That's why he's crying out to God. The historical situation that's going on is vague. It's ambiguous. It's not specifically clear, but what is clear is verses 3, 4, and 5. David wants justice. He is praying and asking that the wicked people will get what they deserve. We don't know who those wicked people are. It could be his son Absalom who's trying to kill him and take him off of his throne. You ever had a son or daughter try and kill you to take your wealth or your power, or your position of authority? Well, that's a situation that really happened in David's life. You could imagine, God, save me, protect me, or I am a goner. And that's historically true and accurate. And so David is praying that the wicked in his life, whoever they may be, would receive the payment for the labor that they have done with their evil hands. You do some work, you expect a paycheck. And he's using that as an image to say, they've done some work with their hands, and the paycheck they deserve is judgment. And then notice the way that the psalm shifts. Quickly, we're told right away in verses 6 and 7 that God heard his prayer and answered him. The tone changed from a prayer of lament to a declaration of praise. Bless the Lord, he says in verse 6. Bless Be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my plea for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. As people have studied the historical situation of this psalm, it's not maybe too surprising when you read it again and again, as certainly I have done this week, where you notice 
that the entire psalm, verses 1 to 7, is written in the first person singular. I, my, me, save, me, my, right? Then when you get to verses 8 and 9, there's a change from first person singular to third person plural. His people, your people, their shepherd, carry them. And this is why some would propose that verses 1 to 7 were written originally by David himself. Then after David died, the people of Israel, who were literally dragged off by wicked men and women during exile, became refugees in Babylon. Perhaps during this season of life, they were thinking about David's prayer and how God answered them and that they added in worship by a priest or a scribe, verses 8 and 9, for corporate worship. Now, I'm not sure if that's how this psalm was formed, but you can make sense why someone would suggest that. Historically, reading the psalm this way, I would want to just ask one simple question. What's then the big idea? So what? What's the point? There was a king named David who had some trials. He prayed. He asked for justice to come. It came, and he praised God for it. Good for him. Whoop-de-doo, right? Well, God's people apparently found strength in the fact that since God answered David's prayer, that then trickled down to them. And so therefore, they found a sense of strength from it as well. And I think this is what's going on in verses 8 and 9. Here's the point, the big idea of the psalm in a nutshell. The Lord is not just David's strength and shield. Verse 8 says, God, the Lord, Yahweh, is the strength of all of his people. The Lord does not just hear the king's prayers. He hears the prayers of all of the people. The poorest, the weakest, the vilest, the sickest, whoever they may be. This God is for them. The Lord is the strength of his people. And then pay very close attention to the parallelism of verse 8. The first line and the second line are supposed to complement each other. So look at verse 8 with me. And notice the way that the Lord is the strength of his people, plural, in the first part. But the second half of verse 8 is that God saves his anointed, singular. The strength of the people, plurally, collectively, is found in the saving of the anointed, singularly. Whoa. Meditate on that. Read this historically. God will strengthen his people when he saves his anointed. And the Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. The Greek word for anointed is, who knows? Christ. Let me read it like this. God will be the strength of his people because he has saved the Christ. That's what this psalm literally says. And David was the first of what would be many successive Christs, anointed kings over the people of Israel. Jesus is not the only Christ. That's not his last name. It is a title. Jesus, the anointed one, the king over God's people. So God saving his anointed king will result in salvation for the rest of God's people. That's the historical reading of this psalm. That's what this is all about. God saves, blesses, shepherds his people as the fruit of him saving his anointed. So let me say it a a couple different ways. If you historically read this psalm, the big idea you could say is because God heard the prayer of his anointed king, he will hear the prayer 
of his people. Or because God was the source of David's strength, God becomes the source of his people's strength. Or because God saved his anointed, his people can know that they too will be saved. As verse 9 says, they will be blessed, they will be shepherded and carried forever. I believe the historical reading of this psalm and its big idea is helpful for you when you read the psalms. This is not just for you to read and then quickly go, okay, how does this apply to me? This happened in real human history. And as we will see, these two first layers that we've discovered, reading them responsively, reading them historically, I think we're only scratching the surface. We can read them a third way, collectively. Read the Psalms in their collection, like a Spotify playlist that was created and organized over a certain theme, like an album that was put on a CD back in the day when we made CDs. There would be a theme to music in the modern music genre. This is not weird or strange. It's old. It's ancient. The Psalms are like a a Christian cantata or a musical play. They're telling poetically in the 150 Psalms the story of Israel, and in the Psalms there's collections within the collections. And I'm going to give you just one little example. I could probably talk way too long about this because this is one of those things I love geeking out about, and I think it would be helpful for you when you read the Psalms and go through this sermon series to realize, oh wait, we just covered that theme last week, and then here it comes up again this week. Maybe these psalms were put there not by accident, like it was some sort of like, oh, here they go, and they just got flipped together in 150 psalms. But rather, the whole book is entirely a whole book. But then within that book, there's books. And within those books, there's playlists, segments. So just turn your eyes and your Bibles back to Psalm 26. I'm just going to show you one little thread of this little mini collection. Psalm 26, it says right from the start that it is a psalm of David. And then drop your eyes down to verses 8 and 9. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. A psalm of David, I love your house. I love dwelling in your glory Don't sweep me away with the sinners. Sound familiar? Well, it should, because we covered that a few weeks ago. And then last week, we covered Psalm 27. Turn to Psalm 27. A psalm of David. That's your reader response, you know, responsively. We're still practicing. A psalm of David. David, again, says this in verses 3 and 4. Though an army encamps against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. There's one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Then look at our psalm one more time. A psalm of David. And do you see that David... And these three psalms has a theme and a pattern of crying out to the Lord and saying in verses 1 and 2, O Lord, I call, you are my rock, don't be deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I will go down into the pit, I'll be a goner, I'll be a dead man. Hear the voice of my plea for mercy 
And when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands, they are toward your most holy sanctuary. Did you catch the thread in these three Psalms of David? The house that he loves to dwell in, the temple that if he could have one thing, it would be to gaze at the beauty of the Lord in the temple. And if he is in a trial or circumstance that he is find no help from prayers and pleas and cries for mercy, he, he lifts up his arms and he says, I want your sanctuary. And again, this theme of don't sweep me away with the wicked, even if I'm surrounded by an army, even when injustice abounds. I want you, God. I want to dwell in your presence. And that's, I believe, the theme. Or maybe you could say it this way. What is the point of this three-psalm collection that's back to back to back? I think it's the point that we've already said. Dwelling in God's presence is David's only hope. It's his source of strength. It's the one thing he wants more than anything else. It's his confidence when he looks around and he finds no confidence here on earth. When he needs help, he turns to God's temple. Maybe if you start reading the Psalms collectively, you won't be surprised when you turn to next week's Psalm, Psalm 29. Maybe just glance your eyes down, Psalm 29. How does it begin and end? With a declaration of praise about God's strength. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And then look at the final prayer of Psalm 29, verse 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. I suggest that whether you read Psalm 28 individually or collectively, the big idea remains the same. The Lord is the source of strength for his people. Those who seek him with all of their heart, even when he seems silent, he will hear your prayer. And you can be confident of this because he saved his anointed. So read the Psalms responsively in corporate worship. Read them historically. Read them collectively in their collections. See the themes and notice the way they highlight the main points of the Psalms. Fourth, we have five total. We're almost there, friends. Fourth. Read the Psalms personally. I don't know about you, but at this point of the message and in this point in my own kind of thought and preparation, I thought, I think we've already got a nice rich feast of meditation and study of God's word, and we haven't even touched you yet. I actually think that might be good for you. I probably listened to close to a dozen sermons on Psalm 28 this week from various pastors. And it felt like to me that there's one play in the pastor playbook. Read the psalm and preach it personally. Just quickly jump to your personal situations. How many of you are going through a hard time where you're feeling weak and you need strength? Well, God's got a breakthrough for you. Turn to him. And just around the corner, you're going to get that breakthrough. Friends, there may be times where that's helpful. And I'm going to walk us through how to read this personally in light of what we've already seen. But I think if that's all you do with the Bible your source of strength will be weakened because it'll be you. You're reading you into the Bible instead of pulling God out of the Bible. And that's our hope and aim every week at Embassy is that you would sense that Pastor Phil is spending his time studying this passage so that he gets God's glory and his praise and his worship and then we see his word for what it is and we get strength from it. So let's do that. Let's see this psalm personally giving us strength in light of its collective 
and historic context. Well, I'm certain many of you have felt weak or vulnerable, maybe even very recently because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Many of you are sick. Some of you might be listening to this sermon online because you couldn't make it. Because of your sickness, your weakness, friends, we are finite. We are fragile. If there was one thing we've learned over the last two years, it's that we are not in control. So what about the strength you need for dealing with not just sickness, disease, How about death? How about the strength you need for dealing with what seems like rampant injustice like David's dealing with in this psalm? When you see the wicked go about their business, do their work with their hands, and then they get away with it. The man who abuses his wife and there's no sentence. The man who takes children abuses them, and gets away with it. The pastor who abuses the sheep spiritually, financially, and nothing happens. Where is your source of strength in those moments? Our psalm says that it is from God. And God is not inside of you. God is outside of you in terms of his being and existence. In other words, I would want to teach the personal principle of the source of God's strength has to come from the outside in, which is the exact opposite of what you'll hear from any self-help book, therapist, and modern psychologist. Look deep down within yourself. Find that sense of strength. Believe in yourself. Stare at the mirror and tell yourself, you can do it today. God only helps those who will first help themselves. These are the mantras of the modern world that we live in. Instead, you came to a church service where we sang, we stood up, and we raised our voices together and said, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Does that sound a little bit like Psalm 28, verses 1 and 2? God, I have nothing. Empty hands stretched out toward the heavens saying, I need your sanctuary's strength to get through the chaos of this world. And if you don't, I die. God's strength is for those who recognize and admit they are naked and need covered. It's an invitation, as Isaiah 55 says, come and buy even without money. What a concept. Come and buy. I don't have any money. That's okay. You're invited. So lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, and you will be gloriously complete. In order to receive God's strength, you need empty hands like David has in this psalm. Or as Tim Keller has said, and I've quoted many times, the one thing you need in order to come to Jesus and find strength, to find salvation, to find hope, the one thing you need is nothing. All you need to know is how to cry, like my one-year-old daughter. That's what I pictured as I was studying the psalm is her with empty hands raised up to me going, da, 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 da. 
dad, 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 pick me up, hold me, I need you, I want you. Friends, is that not a helpful picture of your faith, your life, your weakness? You need a father who will pick you up and hold you and you've got nothing to offer. So if that's where the strength comes from, from the outside and comes in, I want to ask one further question. What happens once it comes in? Where does God's strength go? Because our psalm doesn't just tell us God is a source of strength that comes from the outside and comes in. But once it comes in, it moves out toward others. A heart strengthened by God cares for and cares about other people. David actually cares for his neighbors from his heart, which is why I believe he is praying about injustice. God, these wicked men and women, they need to get what's coming to them. But instead, look at the way verse 3 says, the wicked speak peace with their neighbors. Outside, they seem kind and sweet. Externally, they seem strong, self-righteous. Internally, their hearts are filled with malice. Consider the contrast between David's heart, who is filled with trust towards something that's outside of himself, and the wicked, whose hearts are filled with malice. You see, a wicked person externally can look very nice and strong. That's worldly strength. But on the inside, it's clear in this passage, they are sick, they are weak, they are insecure. And when someone has the strength of God, it is not just a lip service kind of strength. It flows from the outside in and from the inside out to help those who are also weak. Look at the way verse 7 explains it. In verse 7 of Psalm 28, we read, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. Trust in his heart. Filled with joy, inward trust and joy, leading to powerful deeds of love. I believe David is praying for justice and against injustice because he cares. He cares about the world, his community. He cares about his kingdom. He cares about God and his promise and his word being made right. And he trusts in God's ability to execute that justice. How many times do you, in your own strength, have something happen to you that you feel is wrong. And then you take matters into your own hands, filled with malice or bitterness or a judgmental spirit. When God is your strength, he provides you the power to look at the world differently. To believe and trust in God's sovereign rule and reign over all things and working them for good. It allows someone to trust that God will make all things right and that when you see injustice in the world, you can turn to the God who does care even more than you do. And that flows in and it flows out. I think the other way it flows out is verse 9. Let's say, for instance, the whole theory that verses 1 to 7 were written first and then 8 and 9 were kind of latched on afterwards. Let's just cut that out. Let's say, no, David wrote all of this because he received strength from God and he went from me and my to we and our. Because that's what happens when God comes into your life. You go me-centered to other-centered. David prays not just for himself in verses 6 and 7. Blessed be the Lord. 
I'm so thankful that you answered my prayer. Oh, this is all about me. He turns immediately in verses 8 and 9 and says, save your people. Save your anointed. Bless them. My blessing is for our blessing. Oh, how many of us need to be reminded that the reason we gather together for church and not just listen to sermons online in our pajamas at home is because we need to be reminded that this isn't just about you. It's about us. And your blessing is our blessing collectively in the kingdom of God. The church down the street's blessing is our blessing in the kingdom of Christ. And so is our weeping and our suffering, our hurts and pains. And friends, when we're at our best and we receive God's strength, it turns us outward toward each other, toward the world. When God is your strength, me and my gives way to us and ours. Save me turns to save us. Bless me, bless us. Help me, help us. And I think that's just a sample. That's my little sample of how you could read this personally. Apply Psalm 28 to your life and think about your weaknesses and how in your weakness God can be your strength. But this still may seem a bit abstract. Something outside, the invisible, infinite, powerful God that I believe he exists, but his truth and his strength come into me and then I love others. That's, I think, solved if we read the Psalms fifth and finally devotionally. We've read them responsively. I've talked about how to read them historically, collectively, personally. But if you really want the power and the strength that comes from God and his word, you must make this one of your primary aims. Maybe the goal of reading the Bible, the goal of church, the goal of worship. It's what David said last week in Psalm 27. One thing that's necessary, the beauty of the Lord, his glory. And we said the big idea of this psalm is that because God saved his anointed, his people can know that they will save them. He will save them. He will bless them. He will be their shepherd and he will carry them. For how long? Verse 9. How long will the shepherd carry his people? If God saves the anointed, the people will be saved and they will have a shepherd who will carry them forever. Clearly, this psalm is not just about David, is it? Forever? David's dead. David did go down into the pit. He did not come back up, at least not yet. David's great, 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 great grandson was another anointed king. His name was Jesus. He's a real person. In fact, more has been written about Jesus than David. And in fact, more has been written about Jesus than anybody in human history. He really came into this world and lived amongst us. And he did so to display the power of God in human weakness and vulnerability. He lived a perfect, sinless life, the life that you and I should have lived, constantly depending on God, the Father, as his source of strength, leading outward to a life filled with love toward others. He did that all the way to the very point of his death, the death where he was the weakest, the most vulnerable, where he hung on a cross and cried out to his Father, and he heard nothing in response. When he pleaded in the garden, God, 
take this cup from me? And the response was, this is the only way. As a result, the answered prayer to Jesus, the silence of God to Jesus, was him being literally dragged off with the wicked and hung on a cross between two criminals. He hung on the cross, and instead of praying like David did for justice to come down on the wicked, Jesus prayed what? Talk about a reversal of all reversals. Instead of give them what their hands deserve, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And then he blessed the Lord. In his dying breath, he prayed the Psalms, used the Psalms as a source of strength so that the very last breath, he would give up his life for you. Your life and mine. And the Lord did hear his voice. He heard his cry for mercy. Even though that cry and that answer for Jesus meant that he did go down into the pit. He was buried in a tomb in a grave. But we know that the Lord heard his prayer because three days later, the first Easter, Jesus Christ was raised, vindicated, resurrected. Jesus went down into the grave and the pit, and then the Lord saved his one and final anointed. Jesus the Christ was saved. And therefore, all of his people can know and trust that God will hear your prayer. He will save you. He will bless you. He will be your shepherd. He will carry you forever in his arms. In fact, we've already heard from Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Jesus takes these words on himself and says, I am your shepherd. I will carry you forever and ever. If you would only do this one thing, come with empty hands and regard the work of my hands. Did you notice that the way the wicked, their evil deeds are described in verse 5 as they have no regard for the work of God's hands? The way of strength is to have uttermost respect and regard for the work of Jesus Christ's hands. Forever they will be pierced so that you will see his weakness became the source of strength for you and for me. And therefore Jesus will use those hands to be your shepherd and carry you through every trial in this life and through the grave to resurrection. The God of infinite strength became the epitome of weakness. He who had everything did not see equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied his whole self and became nothing. A weak human dying on a cross. So you and I would have the hope in the face of death. We would have trust in our hearts we would believe that justice will be done and so that you would be changed from the inside out when you read the Psalms and read the scriptures devotionally, Christologically, centered around Jesus. So I want to conclude reading this final prayer of Psalm 28, verse 9. O Lord, save your people. Bless your heritage. And may Jesus Christ be their shepherd and carry them forever and ever. Amen.